Today's guest is the writer Elizabeth Weil. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co-op, the brand who helps get you outside through gear, classes, and adventures. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy the show. Have you ever read an article in a magazine that was so good you looked to see who wrote it? Well, I've done this time and time again with today's guest, the award-winning writer, Elizabeth Weil. Liz covers people and subjects I'm especially interested in, people who tend to live on the fringe and do wild things. She also has impeccable taste for detail in her writing, and she's a voracious reporter. She's written about everyone from snowboarder Sean White to swimmer Diana Nyad, Olympic skier Michaela Schifrin, Olympic swimmer Dana Torres, Senator Kristen Gillibrand, and she's also written books about her own marriage, helped countless people write their own books, and she recently penned The Girl Who Smiles Beads, which won several awards and was a New York Times bestseller. Aside from writing, Liz is a mom to two teenage daughters, and she's married to the famous surf writer, the author Daniel Duane. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, but we focus mostly on one of her more recent subjects. He's a man who paddled across the Atlantic three times in a kayak, all by himself, the third time when he was in his 70s. So we discuss why she's attracted to people like this who do wild things and what she's learned from them. We also dive into how to make it as a writer today, how to get the attention of editors and actually make money doing it, and how to write an awesome pitch. We even discuss why adventure can be really good for your relationship. Enjoy the show. Liz, thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, you really seem to be attracted to people who not only want to live wildly, but just don't want to feel stuck. And I love that about you. I love those people. I feel like those people, the people I write about, are me, but more extreme. And that it's my greatest fear in life to feel stuck and trapped. Uh, And I'm mostly a fairly risk-averse person. So I love going and meeting these people who are much braver than I am. So you grew up on the East Coast, right? I grew up in deep suburbia on the East Coast. And kind of what made you risk adverse? Just maybe give us a little background on you. You know, I think it's partly just who I am. Like my scare reflex is so strong. Like if I even think maybe something bad is going to happen, like a little bad thing, like if I'm a passenger in a car and I think someone's not paying attention, I get so flooded with cortisol that I can like feel it coursing through my body and it kind of hurts. So I think partly it's just who I am. I also grew up, as I said, in suburbia in a very risk-averse family. Like no one in my family barely even did sports. And so it wasn't the culture that I grew up in and I was attracted to it. Like I did way more of that stuff than anybody in my family, but I'm still in a way uh, novice, even, even at middle age. I love that because I actually grew up in a family from the East Coast where my mom was like, you can only go surfing if there's a lifeguard out. And I was like, that is just not going to happen, mom. And eventually we broke that. But I also think that being, you know, having that sensitivity to fear must be what also makes you such a good writer and pay attention to the detail. I think I'm mesmerized by people who don't feel that way. And so I'm just sort of like fascinated by every little piece of them. Like this weekend I went to see Free Solo. Oh, um, yes. You know, the Alex Honnold Me movie. Too. And I was sitting next to my 16-year-old daughter who is like a Yosemite climber already. And she is in utter control of her fear, however much she feels it. And I was sitting there watching the movie, which I know ends well, right? We know Alex is fine. He's not dead. But I like, I could not watch it. Like I had my hands in front of my face, (laughs) like the whole film. And that's just how I am. Oh, that's hilarious. And your daughter, let's just put a little side note in here. Your daughter climbs with Beth Rodden, a former guest of this episode who you're advising on a book, which is so cool. 
Yes, Beth has been just like this miracle friend, mentor, all around awesome person in all of our lives. I love Beth as a friend, and she has been just this total dream to Hannah. She's like taken Hannah climbing a bunch of times. She is like unbelievably kind <laughs> and supportive. Hannah's how old? She's 16. Imagine being 16 and your climbing coach is like one of the legends. That's that's amazing. Beth Rodden. I, I don't think you get a better climbing coach than that. And not for her in that Beth you know, as you know, is a very, she's like a person who does these incredibly scary things, but meticulously, you know, she's very controlled, safe person. So as a parent too, like Hannah wants to climb El Cap and I'm like, okay, (laughs) but you need to talk Beth into it because I would feel completely safe with Hannah in that circumstance because Beth is just like, she's just the best. That's awesome. So we've gotten completely off topic, which is great because I could talk to you forever about everything. But I want to start with one of your most wild characters that you you interviewed a little while ago. It was in the New York Times magazine, Doba, a guy from Poland who decided to cross the Atlantic in a kayak not once, but three times. The third time in his 70s. So when most of our parents in their 70s, mine goes to Soul Cycle or some like retire, this guy is kayaking three times. Maybe you could just tell us a little more background on him and then why you think he felt compelled, even at 70, to do it again. Yeah, first of all, he is amazing. He's maybe my favorite character ever. He is just like a force of nature. So like you said, he's Polish. And he, because he's 70, he grew up when Poland was still communist. And when what you could do, you know, your freedom, both like politically and just like where you went in the world and what you were allowed to do was so curtailed that I think, one, it made him just desperate to have those experiences. Like he's the kind of person that has existed always that just loves those experiences and craves them. And he had to do whatever it took to have them. So I think one piece of it is how he grew up. And then the second piece of it is related, but I think the feeling of freedom is so incredibly important to him. And even now in Poland's a democracy, like freedom to him is getting to just go rage against the world. You know, just go put yourself in the most extreme environment that is most outside of culture and expectation. And that feels truly free to him. Mm. So then there he is. He's like a strong guy (laughs) and he's mentally so tough and irrepressible that he feels like, I don't want to just like sit around now that I'm 70. Like I want to keep living my life and I'm strong enough to do it. So here I go. Can I read this little passage from it? Of course. Okay. So hopefully I don't butcher anything. Doba kept no schedule. I'm not German, always 9 a.m. paddle, he explained. I'm Polish. I paddle when I would like. His skin broke out in salt-induced rashes, including blisters in his armpits and groin. His eyes blew up with conjunctivitis. His fingernails and toenails just about peeled off. His clothes permeated with salt, refused to dry. The fabric smelled horrendous and aggravated his skin, so he abandoned his clothes. That's pretty awesome. So he basically kayaked naked. Ocean kayaking is catastrophically monotonous. The primary challenge is not physical. Doba describes the tedium as a form of dementia. Hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of repetitions. His brain is removed from the process. Doba rotated through three kinds of freeze-dried porridge for breakfast, four kinds of freeze-dried soup for lunch, and an assortment of a dozen freeze-dried entries. He ate all the meat options first. He also snacked on dried fruit and his wife's plum jam, but he ran out of that halfway across the ocean. Every time he closed his eyes, Doba told me, I dreamed I was paddling in the winter in Poland. He lost 45 pounds. Still, the trip was perfect. 99 days after leaving Senegal, Doba arrived in Brazil. He was greeted by one journalist and the Polish ambassador. Nobody cares if you cross the Atlantic in a kayak. The fact that Doba knows this is clear in his eyes. In photos from the ends of his trip, he looked ecstatic and feral in the best possible sense, intrinsically wild and free. Damn, Liz, like that writing is so good. And he just seems so cool. He is the 
coolest and he's the coolest I think because like that line that he knows that no one cares like I think that in a certain sense like yeah a few people care if they're really into kayaking that you have crossed the Atlantic in a kayak but in general like not that many people care you're doing it for yourself and you're doing it because you want that experience and he knows that and there is to me that is so incredibly appealing you know, that you'll do this incredibly difficult thing and then not be waiting for anybody to pat you on the back, you know, that you've done it for yourself. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because I interviewed, you know, I interviewed Diana Nyad who crossed to Cuba just swimming, but there were people there, you know, at the end. And it's funny, I, I wrote a piece about Diana years ago. I wrote it but before she succeeded, like after her second swim. And she's a massive extrovert. I love her. And she's such a people person. Part of me always has been fascinated. Like, how can she do this? She loves to talk yeah. and she loves an audience. And she's so relational, you know. And Doba... Doba is pretty extroverted, too, in a way. But he does he's not the kind of person who who thrives on that interaction, you know? Yeah. Then you talk about, you know, you already talked a little bit about why you think he did it, but you also wrote this line that I thought was really interesting. It said, you can be made small by life or rage against it. And then it's a word in Polish that I'm not going to try and pronounce. And it translates to, I do not want to be a little gray man, a common expression in Poland and a good motto for us all. I don't want to be a gray man. I like his greatest fear. And I think for a lot of us, it's our, it's a great fear, you know, of like, I don't want to be just like tiny, dull person slaving away in an office, you know, like my life all gray and monochrome and boring. And he's willing to do just like the most extreme thing ever to not be that person. How did you find him? You know, he was a National Geographic, I forget if they're called Adventures of the Year, Explorer of the Year, or whatever. And I had read about him a few years before I did this story. I saw this picture of him. He's like completely fantastic looking. I saw this picture of him. And at the time, I sort of felt like, oh my God, no one cares if you kayak across the Atlantic. What am I going to write? Like, it's so monotonous. And I just kind of forgot about it. And then I wrote a really depressing book, and then I felt like I needed to find some, like, cheerful, awesome people in the world stories, and I remembered seeing him. The book was about genocide. Yeah, okay, it was on genocide. <laughs> we don't need to talk about the book. It was, like, the darkest of the dark, mm. and I felt like I needed to get away from that. So... Anyway, I just sort of, I go through these phases when I want to think up new stories where I just kind of like poke around the web and, you know, bounce from one thing to the next to the next. And I, I remembered him and then it turned out he'd done it again. I hadn't even really realized that he had done it a third time when I started thinking about him again. So then I, whatever, I looked him up and I researched him and I wrote a pitch and then off I went to Poland in January. Yeah. It wasn't very warm then, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing about him is that he will, not only will he paddle across the Atlantic, like he paddles in the Arctic. He doesn't care how cold it is. Like Polish people are so tough. Like there is no suffering that is too much suffering for them. And they have this sort of national identity as the people who are the toughest will suffer the most Mm. and they love that about themselves. They're really proud of it. What did you learn from Doba that you've applied to your life or that maybe could help people listening to this podcast? I learned that, um, hur- like hurling yourself <laughs> against the world, that there's a kind of freedom in the absurdity of it. Like, like one guy in a kayak in the middle of the Atlantic is so small. And in a certain sense, you could get all existential about it and be like, you're nothing. You know, you're out there. You're this tiny little speck in the universe. You're meaningless, except he sort of flips it all around. If they're like, you're out there, you're this tiny little speck. You're the only thing you're the hero. So I feel like that's a really good lesson. And that like, it totally flips the whole 
crisis defeatist mentality on its head to be like, I'm in this horrible situation and it's an opportunity for heroism as opposed to like, I am in this horrible situation and I'm a victim. He like totally never plays the victim role. He will turn anything into a situation where he's the hero. I love that because I just interviewed an astronaut and she talked about how small you feel from outer space and, and what it looks like looking at the earth. But I love that whole analogy of flipping it on its head. That's that's pretty beautiful. And in a way, an astronaut, I think, is like the perfect example of it. Like, how, where, uh, where would you feel smaller? Nowhere. Then, like, you're out there in space or this tiny little thing. You're removed from everything. And so you could decide that you're nothing, you know. Or you could decide, I'm having the greatest experience of my life. I'm on this huge adventure. And I'm the star of my adventure, you know, and I think part of it is also like not needing everyone to care. Like you're the star of your adventure and you're the hero as long as you presume that in some ways you're the audience also. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Let's go back. Besides capturing detail, how do you pitch this story? Because when we talked about it, I mean, the pitch is so important, but you say you pitch a story that's like obvious, but then the story is about something completely different. Well, I think there were two pieces to pitching this story. And I think that they're like, for me, often like uh, there for most pieces, which is like the first part is like you have to make the editors reading the pitch love your person. Or that's like often where I come in, unless you're writing about like a politician or like doing investigative <laughs> reporting or doing some or whole criminal. other kind of thing yeah. that it, or a criminal that is, well, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like you have to make them love the criminal oh, that true. is of, you know, massive consequence. If you're basically writing about a person because you think they're interesting. I think a big part of the job is being enthusiastic and conveying why, you're interested in like getting that energy on the page. And for me, I often feel like a lot of that is loving the person of just like, I often feel like I'm sitting like on a couch and the reader is sitting next to me and I'm like, we're looking at the subject of whatever I'm writing about, like across the room and I'm telling them why this person is so awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I'm That's sitting there advice. describing them. Yeah. And for me, at least these days, I feel like being uh, in a positive place is where I want to be. So I don't, I mean, whatever, not everyone has to take the, the positivity approach, but I feel like, so part of pitching it is seeing the person with clarity to show an editor exactly why they are awesome. And then I think a second piece of it, and it was certainly true in this pitch, is then explaining what's the bigger thing this person is going to let you get into, you know, like, why do we care? Like, and for Doba, part of it was like saying like, okay, we don't actually care about kayaking or very few people actually care about kayaking. More of your listeners and readers of the times magazine care about kayaking, but they care about the human experience yep. and they care about trying to have a meaningful life and a good life and figuring out like how to get through it with exuberance. And so then I feel like part of the pitch towards the end usually is sort of saying like, and here's what this story lets me get into. Here's the like really big thing that is bigger than the, you know, overt topic that I'm going to be able to segue into. And like, you know, people call it like your angle or your slant or your whatever. And I somehow don't usually think about it in those terms. I think about it in the sort of, and what is the story really, really about? And why does it matter now? And I think that's important in pitching. It's like doing both showing the editor that you're capable of thinking that way. And then also doing that work for them. Like editors are so busy. They read so many pitches like the more you can just serve them up the thing that they're looking for, the easier it's going to be to get it assigned. You know, one of the things though that you did in this story that was so good was you captured so much detail. You talked about a little bit what he looks like, but I'm just going to read what you wrote. Even here at home, Doba's physicality is sui genre. 
His body appears to be assembled from parts belonging to people of vastly different ages. His skin looks 71. His chest looks 50. His hands and forearm look 30, straight off a Montana Roper. His hair and beard appear to be taken from a Michelangelo painting of God. There's a lot of people listening, including myself, who'd love to write like this. So how do you do that? Like, do you write all these visuals about him when you're there? Do you take pics or do you sort of let it soak in and then you write these amazing descriptions when you get back? You know, a little of both. Like the description that you just read, like, was a sort of both situation. Like I remember at one point, on this trip, sitting there and just looking at him of like, okay, he's such a physically compelling person. How am I going to describe him? And feeling like, oh my God, he looks so old and so young and all that stuff at the same time. So like that idea sort of happened while I was sitting there, but like the, the Michelangelo painting part happened at home. You know, that's just sitting there at my desk being like, oh, my God, how am I going to describe his totally fantastic beard? What's it like? And I'm being like, oh, right. It's like those paintings. So I think that I think that there's not one simple answer. And But I also think that, like, taking the time while you're reporting to just sit there and try to let, like, your brain relax and be a little creative is really important. Like, those ideas... When you have them, you have to write them down, or at least if you're me, you'll will forget them for sure by the time that you're trying to write. What are some other tactics you did to get this story? I, I, I listened in another podcast. I mean, you reported the heck out of it, but you don't speak Polish. I know you swim, but I'm guessing you're not like a professional kayaker. So No, no, I'm a crappy kayaker. <laughs> you Googled, <No. laughs> you use Google Translator to like translate his book? So there were a couple kinds of translating that happened. Yes, he sent, before I went, he sent me a, a doc that was the manuscript of a memoir he wrote in Polish. And I clearly wasn't going to spend the money to have it professionally translated. Like, no one was going to reimburse me. It was just too much. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just throw the whole thing through Google Translate and see what happens. And it was rather hilarious, but it was good enough for me to have a bunch of background to like know more like what questions to ask him. Like, obviously, I wasn't going to like quote this Google translated mess, but then I also had a translator working with me on the story and he was a really, really good translator. And by good, I mean, he was a, he's a journalist. He's like a guy who used to be the editor-in-chief of Polish National Geographic. So he knew the job that I was trying to do beyond just like, what did he say? You know what I mean? That he could ask the questions in a way that was gonna get Doba telling me stories and he was going to translate back to me with all the detail that I was going to need. And I said to him, just like, actually tell me <laughs> word for word, let's go really slow. And I want to be able to capture his voice. So let's not worry about how long any of this takes. Let's just do it kind of word by word. How many words did the piece end up being like in around the pages or words in the New York times magazine? Oh, I don't really know. It's maybe six or 7,000 words. That's, that's a long that's a long piece a long in a magazine. I and mean, that's like 14 pages. It's a long story. But he's an amazing character. I re- like, I often write, I often think stories should be shorter. Like, I'm not, I'm not a writer who thinks everything should be long. But I just loved him. So, Do you ever come back from doing these stories on these adventures and then you have to go do an adventure? You're inspired to go do something or you change in some way? I came back from this story really wanting to travel. I didn't come back thinking I need to like go on a grand kayaking trip. I mean, it sounded kind of great, but it also, what he did is so obviously awful. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't inspired to do that thing, but I really loved the experience of getting to go somewhere and drop in on some weird little niche of the world. So, 
did inspire me to want to, you know, do more stories that took me to sort of weird, random people and places. So you also interviewed, I think, this amazing hiker who has like the re- yes. the record. Can you can you talk to me about she she this long distance hiker? Who was she? And maybe just give me a little bit more information about her. Her name is Sarah Marquis. She is also completely nuts. She goes on these like really epic walks. So I wrote about her after she'd done this walk that like started in Siberia and then went like down through Mongolia. And then she wound up taking a boat over to Australia and then she walked around Australia. Anyway, she too is a person who just really like hurls herself at the world to sort of test what the limits are of being a human animal. Like even more than Doba, I think she really just wants to like strip it all away and be like, what can a human being do? And, and she's pretty interested too in like of what, what can like a, a female human being do in the world? Like, um, She's very clear that she thinks the the greatest risk to a female human in the wild is a male human in the wild. So going back to this theme of like being unstuck, what did she learn from walking all of these miles? I mean, do you even know how many miles she walked? It sounds probably an impressive number. The story I wrote about focused on a walk that she did that was like almost 10,000 miles. Yeah. So really, really, really long. What did she learn? That's a good question. Like she is sort of, she's more focused on the question of survival. Like it's a little less about ideas for her than it is about physicality. You know, like what do you do if you're in the desert and you don't have water? Or like what can you eat out there? Like she... She does a lot of eating of insects, you know, that like, so she's, she's very interested in, in the physical limits of survival. And so I think she learned that you can really survive (laughs) quite, quite a lot if you have at least minimal gear, like if you have a tarp to collect water with off a bush in the desert at night when it condenses, you know. That's good because you can buy tarps at REI. (laughs) <laughs> you can buy tarps at REI. <laughs> Sorry. Shameless plug. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. When we come back, Liz shares some awesome writing tips. So stay tuned. With Black Friday just two days away, it's almost time to opt outside, which means REI will be closed Black Friday again because they think some things are more important than selling stuff like spending time outdoors. That's why they pay their employees to opt outside and they invite the world to join. So even though it's their fourth year in a row, it's still all about doing something different. There's thousands of ways to get outside, all be surfing and hiking. So change up your routine and opt outside this November 23rd, 2018. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm curious about your writing, Liz. You're such a good, prolific writer. I mean, you're the only female adventure writer who I I Google constantly. Or I look at the byline. It's awesome. How did you get the wild idea to be a writer? You know, I... It's kind of a boring, embarrassing story. You know, like I said, I grew up in this, like, preppy town. um, And I took one writing class in college that I loved. And then I graduated and I felt like but I have to get a normal job. Like that's just what everybody does. So I got a job editing textbooks and I had a boyfriend who quit that same job to be a freelance writer. And he was like, you should quit your job and be a freelance writer. And I was like, okay. So so I did. And that was now a very, very long time ago. You know, when I worked in a coffee shop and I wrote like anything for anybody. I wrote like quizzes for 17 magazine. I literally wrote for anybody. And then I just kept doing that. And now it's like 30 years later, not 30 years later. Now it's like 25 years later. I love that you wrote quizzes for 17 magazine. I was probably good. <laughs> I really did. Quizzes. I wrote for all those like teeny girl magazines when I was really young because I sort of felt like, okay, what, do I have to offer as this incredibly young and experienced 
female writer, and I was like, well, those places, it's good to be young. Like, you're more in that mindset. So Yeah, no, I wrote, I got my start at, like, Lemonade, Surf Life for Women, Foam Magazine, Teen Vogue. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then I wrote for outside. You know, any advice to writers? There's a lot of people who want to be writers on this, who listen to this podcast. I'd love to just get some advice from like pitching to what makes a good story, just how to do it. Well, okay. Um, what is my best advice? I would say, like I said before, I think being able to convey your enthusiasm and your interest is like a very big part of getting pieces signed. So like starting at the beginning, like how do you get a piece assigned? I think being able to do that is key and doing a lot of reporting before you pitch is also, I think, really key. Like especially if you're starting out. Editors, they don't have a reason to trust you yet. They don't even know who you are. So you have to like serve them up a thing that that just shows them that you are capable. And the way to do that in a pitch is to have done all of the pieces that you're going to eventually need to do. I mean, like the components of the thing that you're eventually going to need to do in the story, you know, so you need to like write it the way you're going to write it. And you need to report the pitch enough to show like, I understand that reporting is a very big part of my job here and I'm going to do that. So I think pitching, at least if you want to be a magazine writer, is a very, very big deal. Because if you don't get that right, you're not going to have any work to start with. And getting that right basically teaches you to do everything you're going to need to do later. Anyway. I feel like the best investment was I took a how to pitch class from Media Bistro years ago and just learned Mm -hmm. to pitch like a master. And I actually like pitching better than writing the story. I love pitching. I would pitch all day long. <laughs> but you don't get paid to pitch. You only get, I mean, you get paid when your pitch is accepted. And I, that's, that's yeah. the tricky part is making a living as a writer is not easy. Yes. You don't get paid to pitch, but if you only write pitches that you haven't put in the work on, you don't get paid to do anything because you don't get them assigned either. Like I, I do think that it's a worthwhile investment of time. Yep to work hard on pitches. But I just want to break it down for anybody listening who, who wants to be a writer that you're going to have to basically work for free to make your pitch. And then you might get paid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, it is not a great way to make money in the world being a writer. But given the, 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 the lame financial landscape of it all, you know, I think of it as it's like you're, it's, like lots of businesses work on like you bring a proposal to somebody and either you get the job or you don't get the job. And that's essentially what a pitch is. Yeah, no, that that's a great way to look at it. But then on the side, you don't just do magazine pieces. You write books and you help people with their books. Is that yeah. is that sort of how you balance it and, and make it all work? It is. You know, I live in San Francisco, which is preposterously expensive. And I'm married to a writer and we have two children, all of which is set up for needing to like squeeze every penny you can out of your writing career. So I do some ghost writing on the side. I do a little like book coaching on the side. I do some book projects. Not that those wind up being necessarily like a quicker way to make some money, but the ghost writing certainly is. And I feel like it gets exhausting writing all the time. So having like a mix of helping other people sort of, means that I can do more and make some more money than if I was just writing and I would like get exhausted and then be done. And it's probably really fun. Like thinking about someone else's work always in your own. It is. It's always more fun to think about someone else's story. And in a way um, I feel like sometimes it's not that it's easier to be creative, but like there's less internal pressure You know, I feel like there's a lot, most writers I know feel like a lot of internal pressure that your thing has to be so good and there's so much anxiety wrapped up in that. And when you're helping somebody else, like all that just like gets taken down a notch where like you're there to help somebody. You're not, your ego is not on the line in the same way. 
Do you have any routines or things you do to keep that ego or just to deal with that anxiety and internal pressure? I mean, I experience it too. Sometimes I get nervous before a podcast and I experience, and that's, it's much easier, I feel like, to do a podcast and writing, but I feel it. So I do have a routine. I mean, part of the, part of it is that like, I have kids who are in school, so I think I'm inclined to work a very like regular schedule anyway, but given that, you know, sort of the family is on a, like on the weekdays, you get up in the morning and then you go do your thing and then they do a lot of sports. And so then they come home at night and we have dinner and whatever. So like I basically work from like eight to three or three thirty, And then I almost always go get some exercise, which is sort of my way of, resetting. So I work at home. So then I can sort of like come back home and be outside of my work brain, you know, and more relaxed and rejuvenated. And I can like work really hard, long days, like a couple days in a row, but then I get burnt out and I can't keep doing it. So having a more regular schedule for me, at least, means I can actually just keep doing my job as opposed to like working really hard and getting burnt out and not being able to do my job and then needing a big reset and then repeating that. Well, thanks. Because actually, Mark Lukic, who was on this podcast last year, could ask me, you know, like, how do you do it all? And it sounds like you figured out a way to have balance. Yeah. You know, that I think that when I was sort of starting out, like finding a schedule for myself and keeping a schedule, all that felt hard. Um, and then like anything, if you do it for a lot of years, like those pieces of it get easier and you figure out what works for you. Um, I used to remember saying to people, I think you have to like work at home for two years until you get used to it. And you don't just want to like go lie on the couch and watch Netflix all day, which like you do. Like if, you're, if you haven't been living that life, you're like, oh my God, all of a sudden you have all this freedom to do what you want with your day. And then you do that. But then if you do that enough times, then you get to the like self-loathing part of it where you're like, oh shit, I just wasted my entire day. <laughs> I don't actually want to live a life of only watching Netflix. I would like to actually be a writer. So I better do that. I started working from home 10 years ago or 11 years ago now, and there was no Netflix or at least I had no TV. That was not an option, but surfing was an option and that was challenging. How could I not surf all day and run all day? And eventually you just you can't surf all day and run all day. So you have to go home and write. You do a lot. And even, I mean, I don't really know how you juggle it. Even Mark Lukic, the writer who we've had on this show, who actually said you're a mentor of his and recommended I interview. He said I should ask you about the role health and nutrition play in your family. Because even when I went to your house, I mean, you had gymnastic rings hanging in your house and when we stopped for lunch, Dan made this incredibly healthy, yummy <laughs> gourmet salad, and it was awesome. Yes, we. Uh, I'm very lucky. I Dan is the the cook, so I I work in the basement, and he works in like a loft above our kitchen. And I generally get a text in the middle of the day that says lunch, and then I like run up the stairs. And sometimes, like when you were here, like we sit down and have lunch. And a lot of days we don't like take a break then because he'll want to go surf later in the afternoon and I'll want to quit too. And so sometimes there's like a break for lunch in the middle of the day and sometimes there's not, but there's hardly ever, like I was saying, just like work straight through until evening. And yeah, all of it is such habit at this point. It's hard to think about, but we do, we like eat healthy food. We're not like vegetarians or vegans or any of that, but we, we eat healthy. We, we live fairly like lifestyle-wise, straight and narrow lives. You adventure together though, too. Like you swam across to Alcatraz together, correct? Yes. I don't mean like straight and narrow, but we yeah. don't have adventures. Just like we get enough sleep. Like we do yeah. like the basic things to keep feeling good. Because I do think like if you feel like crap, you're just not going to you're not going to get anything done. It's too exhausting. But yes, we've had some big adventures together. We swam from Alcatraz together. We generally go on a big family backpacking trip in the Sierra every summer. Uh, we had a phase of doing triathlons together that that ended with 
back problems for me. But mm. yeah, we go we go do like family stuff out in the wild. Oh, I think that's great. I actually just was interviewing Gabby Reese yesterday and we talked about I was saying I run with my fiance now and I'm like, but now we race because he's getting as fast as me. And she's like, do not compete with your boyfriend, your husband or fiance or boyfriend, whatever he is. Like, just don't compete with him. That's not good for your Yeah, that was hard. We had a hard time running together. <laughs> that was the one thing where, like, we never totally sorted out our egos. I had been really into running. And in the years where we were running together, Dan was also lifting. So some days we'd be like, okay, let's go for a run. And then we would start out and he would be like, oh, well, yeah, I squatted really heavy yesterday. I basically can't move. And then I would be really frustrated because I wanted to have my run. And anyway, it was a whole saga that we have not encountered in other areas. But I agree with Gabby. Competing is bad. I appreciate that. You wrote a book about your marriage and how, you know, doing adventures bring you closer together. So I'll put that book in the show notes. It's a long title. Will you tell me the title of it? The title is No Cheating, No Dying. I had a good marriage and then I tried to make it better. But so basically it was like I scoured all of the like marriage advice and couples therapies and whatever out there. And frankly, one of the best pieces of advice was like, go do new stuff together. And it sounds kind of hokey and very like, um, very relationship advice, but it's really fun to go do new stuff together. And then if you're in a really long relationship, they're like, if you don't, go after new stuff, then it just sort of tends to fall away because you get in your habits and you keep like chugging along your habits and then years go by and you're like, oh my God, this is getting to be a little bit of a rut. So I highly recommend it. And that was what prompted the Alcatraz swim. We're like, we need a big new thing. So, (laughs) so we trained to do that. Okay, so for people listening, go do an adventure with your partner, whoever your partner is, whatever stage and go of relationship. do like a new adventure. A go new do one. like something that is kind of outside of normal. Like it doesn't have to be like extreme necessarily, but just that is not not your known turf. And I think you know, and better if it's not one person's turf or the other person's turf. That it's just like neutral. A neutral new thing. I like that. Sounds goofy, but I think it's good. That's good. We're going to start doing that question on on every podcast. You know, like, what's the wild thing you should go do right now? And I think, like, if you don't have a, <laughs> a partner or significant, a friend or your mom or, you know, a family member, someone you have a relationship with, that's a really good thing to do. Um, so your mom to a teenager. To two teenagers. To two teenagers. Whew. I feel like 15 is a pretty... Like 14, 15, 16, teenage years are, are kind of tough, especially for women. You know, any advice if you go back to your 15-year-old self that you would give her? Yeah, it's a little corny, but I feel like believe in yourself and dig into your passions that I think like the beautiful part about being 15 and the horrible part is that everything is so intense. It's like the volume on your emotional life is so loud. And I think in general, that gets a really bad rap, but there's also a great side to that passion. And like my advice to her would be to just like to dig into the parts of it that are positive. I think that's good advice. I forgot to ask you, you know, what are you working on now that you're excited about that you can talk about? I mean, you mentioned to me this story that you're working on about this guy who climbs. I'm just about to start working on a story about this British guy who has Alzheimer's who climbs the same mountain every day. And I'm really excited about it. I feel like it sounds to me like this fairy tale in a way. Like I love how iconic the setup is and I love how adaptive it is in this beautiful way. Like having, staying strong physically is a really important piece of combating dementia. And so his way of doing it in this place that is familiar and he's still in fairly good health. And he's very aware that this mountain is the last thing that he will remember 
anyway, I haven't reported it yet, so I don't know him very well, but I'm really looking forward to it. Wow, that's such a timely piece. I think like one out of five of my friends' parents has Alzheimer's right now. Yeah, and it's so scary. Like, I feel like it's terrifying to me in a way that almost nothing else is. And his way of approaching it is somehow very comforting to me. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he's still early stage, too. If he's-, he's still early stage, but I feel like there's something, there's something that is both accepting and positive about how he's approaching it that I really admire. Liz, I can't wait to read that. I mean, my partner's mom is going through it, and one of my best friend's father's going through it. It's, I have another friend who's writing a book about it, and her mom is going through it, and it's just so losing your mind has to be the hardest thing, and it's hard on other people. So I'm, I'm curious to know how you're going to report how it's affecting other people in his life. Yeah. <laughs> so many questions about that. Thank you so much for this. You know, I, I just want to know, like, any other questions any other advice I can you can give to people who just want to live wildly? You've interviewed so many people who live wildly. And, and, you know, for me, wildly doesn't mean like they're just wild and crazy and they do these things, but they live life full on their own terms. You know, advice on, on how to do that, because I'm guessing it hasn't always been easy for you to kind of carve the and live the path that you've lived. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about like anything that's been hard that you've been able to overcome and advice you can share from it. I feel like the secret to dealing with the hard part of writing, like a very large part of that is not quitting, which I know is complicated and I know it can be like a mess financially and all these things, but I feel like it's hard. And like a lot of these, these adventures that I write about, just like most people quit and, and it's not that they don't have valid reasons or whatever, but the truth of it is that most people quit and most people who want to be writers quit because it's hard and it's a pain in the ass and you don't make that much money. And there's a lot of risk in a not super exciting way, generally speaking. So I really think that like not quitting and working hard and, Um, just all the things people say and like reading and like deconstructing stuff to figure out like some piece that you love, like how, what, what is even in it? How did they put it together? And then not being afraid to like just copy the big building blocks as you try to get going on a draft of like, well, what kind of thing was their lead anyway? And what was the structure and just grabbing hold of the things that will let you keep going and believing that you have a right to keep going, I feel like there's such pressure on all of us to do the normal thing. And when I started out as a journalist, being being a journalist was a much more normal thing than it is now. So I yeah. think it takes a whole other level of bravery than I had to muster at the beginning. I appreciate you being honest. I mean, I'm curious to know, one, I really appreciate you being honest about the financial part because when I went to college, I had this mentor that I loved and he had a really nice house and he'd written a book and he was crushing it as a writer. And I was like, wow, I could make it financially as a writer. But what I didn't realize until much, I knew it, but I didn't, I didn't like put it all together. Is his wife is the heiress to a large banking family. <laughs> like a really right. large one. I'm not going to say the name of it, but you would know it. You probably do your banking there. And, uh, I think I just, we don't always know people's financial situations on how they get to do the wild thing they do. And the financial part's a big part of it. And I do think, and what's been really true for us is keeping your life cheap is like, Mm. if you don't keep your life cheap, forget it. I mean, unless you have some fortune tucked away somewhere. But if you're like most people and you have no fortune waiting for you, keeping your life cheap is like a very big thing that you have control over that can make it sustainable or not sustainable. Yeah. Like we go backpacking a lot. Like I would love to go on some big fancy vacation every year, but that is really expensive <laughs> with a family. Yeah. So we generally speaking don't. And it's not like nobody feels that or wishes things were otherwise sometimes, but I wouldn't trade our life for doing some other kind of work. Where do you and having go? a lot more financial stability. Yeah, where do you go backpacking? We go backpacking on the east side of the Sierra Nevada. 
You're not giving it away. That's okay. <laughs> we don't always go to the same place. Okay. We, like, we've gone on some great trips to 20 Lakes Basin, which is like if you were driving from San Francisco to Tuolumne Meadows and you like went up and over the crest and just out the park on the east side, it is a fantastic place to go backpacking with your family. You can get to like completely spectacular, beautiful country with just a few miles of walking that's not very steep. Well, I I think what I'm learning is that if you, you know, I thought there was only Yosemite, but like just all around Yosemite, there's incredible backpacking everywhere. Yes. And if you're outside of the park, then the whole permitting process is less intense and there are fewer people and there's like beautiful, beautiful stuff outside the park boundary. So Liz, we ask all of our guests, if you could throw a party you know, what kind of party would you throw? Who's coming? What are we eating and drinking? You know, I'm such a boring person and I'm really an introvert that I would literally just throw a party with my close friends. I really would. Dinner party at your house. <laughs> I would have a dinner party at my house where I didn't have to clean up anything with my close friends. And I guess this is a big testament to my life. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like in a dinner party I crave a different thing. I really love our community. I love it. Any like mottos or advice you could give to those who just want to live wildly? Uh, In our family is that dehydration is the leading cause of crankiness. So I don't have great advice other than hydrate. I'm sorry. That is great advice. Hydrate. I think that's probably like some of the most honest advice on the podcast. Liz, thank you so much. To find more on Elizabeth Weil, go to her website, elizabethweil.net. Liz, thank you so much. And thank you to Dan for having me at your house doing this interview and Dan to making amazing lunch and to both of you for just putting amazing work into the world. To you for listening to this show, I really appreciate it. I'm actually wrapping up this season and I'd love to hear what shows stuck out, what you want more of, if any of them helped you. So just email me. You can also write a review on iTunes. I read those and my whole team reads them and they've been awesome. Caro Rose Kish, thank you so much. You wrote a really nice review. So did Dirt Trail Dude. And then this one's really funny. It's from Yaya Gracie. Said, I've been infected by this podcast. Symptoms include but are not limited to binge listening, urge to quit my job, desire to do things that scare me, desire to hike, encouragement to keep going to the gym and get healthy so I can do all the things and sharing this disease with all my friends every chance I get. I really appreciate it. This show has been really fun for me and I've learned a lot. I really love hearing from listeners. It's getting towards the end of the year. We only have a few more shows. We have Eric Goodman, a fitness expert coming up and some more and a really good recap. So stay tuned and don't forget some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. (laughs) 